0: Constellation Podcasts presents the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Alan Fastwell speaking and this is episode 5 of this season of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. As usual, this being the fourth show of the month, we have an interview episode today. And this is the one that gets us back to our scheduled order of things – You'll remember two episodes ago, we were supposed to interview Dr. Rosalind Skelton of the South African Astronomical Observatory. Unfortunately, I messed up somewhere, and the recordings we'd made well in advance of the show were lost. Luckily, we were able to shuffle the slot with another guest, also from SAAO. Anyway, I've spoken to Dr. Skelton again, and this time everything went as planned, and I'll be playing that recording for you in a few minutes. But before we begin, I have a quick announcement to make. You might have noticed at the very beginning of the show where I usually say something like this is the Urban Astronomer podcast and then the music plays that I said something different that sounds like a sponsored message. That's not technically what's happened. You see, I am busy launching a podcast production studio doing everything from scripting to recording to hosting. This particular show is my favourite of the ones that i produce so far and since I enjoy making Urban Astronomer so much it's the top item on Constellation Podcast's portfolio. And as I reflect on what I just said, I realise you probably didn't need to know any of that. Unless you want expert help in creating a podcast, in which case it's probably useful to know. But anyway, I'm hoping this business will be successful enough to pay me a living wage and let me go full-time making podcasts. Until that happens, however, I have to keep hounding you all for Patreon donations. My special thanks to Catherine, Frank Tippin and Peter for supporting me there. Much appreciated. Anyway, you're probably getting impatient to finally hear Dr. Skelton speak about operating big telescopes like SALT and studying ultra diffuse galaxies. Well, here she is. Could you tell me, say for the record, what is your name and a little bit about yourself?
1: Hi, Alan. Um, I'm Dr. Rosalind Skelton. I'm known as Roz. And I'm an astronomer working here at the South African Astronomical Observatory. Um, Based in Cape Town.
0: How did you get into that? I mean, well, before we get that, I mean, where did you come from? What's your what's what's your background?
1: Um, I'm a South African. I grew up in the Northwest Province, um, mostly in Rustenburg, uh, but moved. We moved around quite a bit when I was young. Um, Yeah, I went to school in Pretoria, and then I came down to Cape Town to study and. I did a, a BSc in physics to start off with, um, and yeah, during that time, I, I sort of realised that astronomy was the the thing that I was most interested in out of all the courses I was doing, um, and so I sort of followed through and just kept kept going with astronomy. Um, Where were you I studying
0: think, um, with with astronomy courses? Would that have been Cape Town?
1: Yes, so my BSc and, and honours degrees were in Cape Town, um, and then um, that was all in physics. And then I moved into astronomy for master's, also in Cape Town, um, and then decided to go overseas and, and get some experience elsewhere after that. So my PhD was in Germany. Um, at Well, the degree was through the University of Heidelberg, um, but I was based at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy, which is just sort of up on the hill above town in Heidelberg, a uh, really beautiful spot um, and a very exciting research institute to be in. Uh, I'm not sure how many people there were, but, uh, you know, much bigger than what I had been used to from a small faculty here in Cape Town um, and just a, a lot going on. So it's it's one of the yeah sort of most exciting research institutes for astronomy in Germany.
0: So that would have been about undergrad level that you would have uh, discovered astronomy and, and decided to enjoy that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I took I took a few courses in astronomy um, during my undergrad, but it wasn't one of my majors. So it was you know out of interest. Um, I was concentrating on maths and physics at that point. And um, astronomy, I'm not sure if you came across Tony Farrell Um but he was a really wonderful lecturer um and just very inspirational. So I think doing doing the first and second year of astronomy courses with him, uh, which were open to everyone, you know, not necessarily um people majoring in, in astronomy at that point. Um, so just sort of very general courses, but really, really interesting. And um that probably was sort of the one of the inspiring things that I did that that motivated me to keep going with astronomy.
0: Intro courses are oh great. I I studied at it's Unisa yeah. and um, yeah, with it's Smiths, and they're very lightweight. You know, there's there's no maths involved, but they just just fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and if you have a good lecturer, it makes a huge difference. So we were privileged to have Tony teaching at that stage.
0: So then, what what were your research interests, uh, or current research interests? What are you you interested in?
1: Yeah. So I'm mostly interested in galaxy evolution and how galaxies, well, so how they form and how they've changed with time. Um, And so that's quite a broad field. And within that, um, the main thing that I look at is the effect of the environment a galaxy is in on it. So... Galaxies aren't just found in isolation, but they actually um, might often have groups of galaxies around them, or even bigger clusters, which are just you know very big groups of galaxies, so you could have even thousands of galaxies um sort of clustered together so I'm interested to understand whether having neighboring galaxies um, changes the way a galaxy evolves um if it if it just evolves in isolation it might end up looking pretty different to how it looks when it's sort of grown up in a big cluster of galaxies um, so that's the main thing that I research and we we're looking at quite a different uh, quite a few different projects within that so most of my so from PhD on um, most of my interest has been looking at galaxy mergers so every now and again galaxies actually collide with each other and you um, and that's probably one of the way, main ways in which galaxies grow. So they, they you know, if you imagine two galaxies of a similar mass and size merging together, you would double the mass of the galaxy. So that's you know, quite a uh, a quick way for for the galaxy to increase in mass very um, dramatically. Right. Right. So uh, yeah, studying that merger process and sort of looking at the statistics of how often that happens. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um. I suppose some of the factors there must be. I mean, the obvious ones like dark matter and maybe the the black holes within the galaxies. But um, mm. this is just out of my own interest, I mean, intergalactic medium is that a is is that a factor? Is is that significant?
1: Yes. Yeah. So so within a galaxy, you would have um, dark matter. You'd have gas, uh, and that gas could be in you know it could be just neutral hydrogen, or it could be molecular hydrogen, in different forms and different temperatures that the gas could be at. Um, and then you've got the stars as well. And so all of, and the black holes at the center. So all of those sort of components of the galaxy will have an impact. Um, and we can study them in different ways. So um, at the moment, there's a lot of interest in the gas within galaxies and also the gas sort of between galaxies because we're going to be able to study that with Meerkat and um, the SKA in future. Oh, right. so-, so that's um, quite a, an exciting field at the moment. Um, and so some of my students are, are starting to work on mere calculated projects um, where they're looking at that gas and uh, sort of trying to understand how, how stars form out of the gas, where, where does that happen, what conditions you need in order for stars to form, and then also what turns off star formation. So at some point, many galaxies just stop forming stars or their, their star formation rate slows down. Um, and, yeah, so we'd like to understand why that happens. Uh, is it sort of suddenly they lack the fuel needed for star formation? Or what's what's happened to the gas that it's no longer available to them to form stars?
0: Where do you work at the moment? Are you See on your webpage? It says you're a salt astronomer, but you are…
1: Yes, I'm at SAO, um, and we have a small team of people here who are responsible for, for salt, so we… Um, we're based in Cape Town, but we go up to Sutherland where the telescopes are, um, and we observe. We sort of take turns, so I'm up there about once every two months to observe on Salt, um, and we sort of liaise with all of the partners who are using Salt around the world, um, and, and manage the running of the telescope.
0: Okay, so you does that mean you you, you operate the telescope? Uh, are you doing observations yeah. for other astronomers?
1: Yes. So salt, the way salt works is it's what we call queue based.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so basically, people apply for time twice a year, um, and salt has partners from around the world. I think we're about seven countries at the moment, um, and so all of you know people from from anywhere within that partnership can apply for time, and if they get allocated time, then they have to um, tell us exactly how they would like the observations done. Sort of set up the and um, the blocks that we'll then observe for them. Um, oh. And so up at the telescope, um, there's just a, a team of astronomers, I think there are eight of us at the moment, who who take turns observing, and we do all the observations for, for everyone around the world.
0: I suppose you must be on a rotation then, because uh, that's a pretty remote place yeah. to to live.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, there are quite a few people working for Salt to actually live up there, okay. um, but mostly on the technical side. Uh, most of the astronomers have decided to just stay in Cape Town, and we just take turns to go out there for a week at a time.
0: Tell me, what do you reckon um, of all the observations you've made for people? What's any standouts? Uh, the most, in, like, like, basically interesting or um, or, or challenging?
1: Yeah, there, there are lots of interesting things. So, one of the benefits of uh, working for a telescope that that does these um, Q mode observations is that you get to actually observe all sorts of different things. You know, if I was just observing for my own science, then I would just be observing galaxies all the time. Um, but in this case, I get to see all sorts of different things. So um, some of the most interesting are supernova explosions and and Often, um, they actually have taken place in in another galaxy, so fairly distant, um, but that single star in the galaxy has brightened enough that you can see it uh, sort of standing out from, from the rest of the galaxy. Right. Um, and yeah, often, you have these beautifully shaped um, spiral galaxies um, in the background, and then this, this supernova explosion that's gone off somewhere in the galaxy. Uh, so those are, are really fun to observe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, many other things so we we observe everything from um, distant quasars, which are the the black supermassive black holes at the centres of galaxies and they um, at at certain phases they can become really, really bright when they've accreted a lot of material um, and so they they're incredibly bright and you can see them very far away. so we can see those up to probably to about um, 11 billion years back in time. So you're starting to get relatively close to the the beginning of the universe's um, history then. Um, And we can see that far back because these objects are so bright.
0: Tell me, do you see the variability in those?
1: Yes. So quite a lot of the black holes we observe, um, people are actually looking for variability. So... Um, they have uh, sort of they go through these phases, and at different times you'll you'll see stronger emission, um, yeah, coming from around the black holes, and it, it changes. We actually observe a lot of um, what we call transient objects, which are changing in brightness. Um, so there's a a big program um, with uh, yeah led by South Africa, but um, a lot of the partners around the world participate as well. Looking for transient objects um, that are mostly identified on small telescopes, and then following them up with salt to um, to measure the spectrum of it, and then figure out you know, what it is, why it's changed in brightness, um, and often they're very very interesting objects.
0: Is that specifically like holes and quasars, or is it, is it anything anything very? Warm? No,
1: it could be anything. So um, a lot of them are what we call stellar objects, so stars within our own galaxy. Right. Um, or sometimes stars within other galaxies. So supernova would be one sort of class of these transients. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get things like cataclysmic variable stars or novi, um, sometimes black holes as well, um, but not always the supermassive ones, sometimes also the stellar mass black holes. Um, and, yeah, often if there's a, a binary system with uh, two stars orbiting each other um, you can get material flowing from one onto the other and producing outbursts and that kind of thing. And The the, um, gravitational wave event, um, often all those things also produce um, sort of variable emission. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the kilonova, I think it was 2017, uh, we observed it with salt. So that's that's an example of a, a really unusual transient event that we could catch with salt
0: yeah so catching that so so knowing that this was what was also seen by by LIGO or one of those um, yeah okay
1: so in that in that case, they um, identified it with with LIGO and then had a huge area on the sky that they had to try and figure out you know what was the the optical counterpart for this gravitational wave mm. um, and there were many galaxies within that region that they could have uh, you know observed to try and yeah it wasn't really clear where it came from. Um, but luckily you know, a whole lot of telescopes around the world sort of working at it, trying to um, limit the possibilities and and then they, they came up with a target that they thought was quite likely um, and so that was what we went after with SALT.
0: Now, uh, I believe I've caught you in between lectures. Where do you teach?
1: Yes, yeah, so at the moment I'm uh, lecturing at UCT. Um, it's part of the NASP Program so that's the National Astrophysics and Space Science Program, mm-hmm. which is the honours and masters level um, postgraduate courses in astronomy at UCT. There are actually there are NAS programs now at Northwest University and and UKZN as well. Um, the U, the UCT branch has been going for quite a while. Um, yeah, so I've I've been lecturing there the past few years.
0: What would you re- reckon then um, as a well, as a teacher um, mistakes weaknesses if I can use that word uh, that you see in students that maybe they could prepare themselves for What's a, what would be a common advice you reckon for for incoming students
1: hmm. well I think attitude goes a long way so uh, I think what the, the people who really stand out amongst the class are, are generally those who are enthusiastic about what they're doing and and interested and hmm. um, and I think that that having that interest and that curiosity then um, sort of motivates them to go and and work even harder um, and learn more um, and and they end up going really far. Um, yeah, I think there, there are quite a lot of challenges. You know, people coming from all sorts of different backgrounds um, and. You know, don't necessarily have the same level of physics and, and mathematics, uh, mm. which are the foundations um, But yeah for astronomy. I mean you can you can learn the astronomy later, but you do need those strong foundations so it's very important that that people um, Learn as much of that physics um, in the undergrad as possible and and also computational skills um, Which which you would need if you want to carry on in research
0: what do you code in Python mostly, or, or you more? Yes. Clear? Okay.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think most people who I come across at the moment code in Python. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes through different phases. So, uh, one of the popular ones, which I'd actually used mostly for my PhD, was um, IDL, which is Interactive Data Language. Uh, but it's not very common here in South Africa. I think probably because you have to pay big license fees. and So I think Python has really taken over now all over the world as, as the main language for astronomy. Uh,
0: didn't it used to be Fortran for a while if you're doing high-performance computing?
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people use Fortran, and I think um, depending what you want to do, some people still do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, people also use C and sort of... Faster things, depending if you're going to do very computationally intensive work, um, then then you might need to go for something, uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit more robust. But um, for most most of what I do, Python works really, really well, yeah. and it has you know many libraries now uh, that you can sort of plug in and, and utilize things that other people have already worked out for you. Mm. Um, and also a really nice visualization.
0: From my experience, people can get really intense about the correct tool for the job, but I've also found that the one that you know how to use will give you better results than one you don't know how to use, no matter how good the tool itself is.
1: Yeah, often I think we... We you know take the faster route, which is not necessarily the best route, but yeah, yeah certainly faster for me to use Python than attempting anything else.
0: Well, no, of course, you've got to balance runtime versus program, uh, yeah, you know, human time. You know, if it's going to take you months to learn a new tool to save you a couple of hours, it's not really yeah, nice, definitely. You know. yeah.
1: Yeah, we, we have a few people here at the observatory who are running simulations, and, and there I think it's much more important how you've coded it and you know, optimizing your code. Mm-hmm. Um, but for most of what I do, it's, it's image analysis uh, and some statistics, uh, and then you know, visualizing your results, or plotting, so you don't really need anything that's, that's going to be super fast.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So, so you so you code up your own image analysis tools, then you don't just plug it into something off the shelf.
1: Um, we well, there's a mixture. Um, there's some very old astronomy tools, um, IRAF. I don't know if you've heard of um, that.
0: Yeah, I'm, I know about uh, it. I haven't used it.
1: Yeah, so we, we still use that for analysis, um, and then we have quite a few uh, newer tools that are uh, that process salt data using Python. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it depends on the, the task. Um, I think, yeah, people probably, well, there there are a lot of tools available already that you can just use. Um, if you want to do something fairly quick and simple, you can just code it yourself. Um, but yeah, there there are tools available as well.
0: Is there anything that, that you would like to...
1: Well, there are a few different a few projects that I was thinking about um, that, that I could tell you about. So one of them that we haven't really talked about yet um, is studying ultra-diffuse galaxies. So um, this also it relates to the environment uh, that I was talking about earlier, the environments that galaxies are in. Um, but there's a, a relatively recently uh, highlighted population of galaxies called ultra-diffuse galaxies, which are really interesting. Um, and so one of the projects I'm working on is, is looking at these galaxies. Um, they often, they do tend to be found in these cluster environments. Um, so that's why we think the, the environment that the galaxy is in uh, is probably uh, playing a role in how these things form. Yeah. Um, but they've also been found you know, outside of clusters. Um, and they they're quite intriguing because they're, very uh, what we call low surface brightness so very faint and and sort of their light is quite spread out but they're quite large in size so they could be as big as the milky way galaxy um, our own galaxy um, but they they only have the mass of a dwarf galaxy which is you know much much smaller so that's those stars are just sort of spread out into a big big extended disk Um, And they, so they end up looking very different to a normal galaxy. And quite a few of these, these ultra diffuse galaxies have been found to have a lot of dark matter in them. Um, Well, there's actually a mixture of results. So some of them seem to have almost no dark matter, which is very unusual. um, And others seem to be dominated by dark matter. So I think there's, there's still, you know, a whole lot of open questions about how these things form and are they, are they all actually one type of galaxy or are there many different kinds that we're just lumping into the same class? So some of them are probably more similar to dwarf galaxies um, and they've just, they've just sort of puffed up a little bit in size maybe as they've come into the cluster um, or they've somehow been affected by their neighbours or something. Um, but others may have actually just formed that large to start with um, but, but not formed as many stars as expected. Yeah, so so one of my students has been working on on finding these galaxies, and um, and he's he's just writing up his masters at the moment, um, but he's coming up with some really interesting results. of um, He's looked at sixteen different clusters um, and sort of counted up the number of these ultra diffuse galaxies in the different clusters, um, and then is looking at how the number of these things vary with the property of the cluster. So it seems like the bigger the cluster is, the more of these galaxies there are. Um, and they seem to be spread relatively sort of uniformly throughout the clusters, um, which is a bit different to what other people have found. So some people found that they were only found in the outskirts of clusters, um, and they, they sort of didn't survive uh, in the densest regions in the middle. Mm. Um, but he's, he's finding some different results. So I think that's going to be really interesting and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing, um, you know, as he finalizes this project, what, what we come up with.
0: Well, I'd like to see the results when it comes out.
1: So actually, an, another interesting thing about galaxies is sort of how they were um, recently, sort of how they've come back into fashion quite recently. So these low surface brightness galaxies have been known for a long time. Um, But in about um, 2015, um, Peter van Dockum, who was, uh, he's a researcher at Yale University, where where I was before I came to the observatory, um, and he decided to use a a set of Canon lenses, so these big wildlife camera lenses, uh, to observe the sky and look for this very low surface brightness, diffuse stuff. Um, was that the, the, it the
0: was wasp telescope with a lots of commercial um, it's lenses?
1: the dragonfly array.
0: I'm mixing up my names, here. Yes, okay, thanks. Sorry.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it turns out that these Canon lenses are really useful for for picking up this faint stuff. Um, and so, yeah, while while I was at Yale, he was busy experimenting in his basement with with these lenses and and trying to um, you know come up with. The best possible configuration to uh, to identify all this this faint stuff in the outskirts of galaxies. Um, And then they observed the Coma cluster, which is a very well-known cluster. Um, And instead of, you know, picking up the sort of tails and the bridges between galaxies that would result from mergers, which is what they were looking for, they actually found all of these other galaxies, which, you know, sort of isolated, but but bigger and fainter than expected. Um, so they found almost 50 of these ultra-diffuse galaxies in the Coma cluster, and that really set off the the questions again. What are these things, and how do they form and evolve?
0: So were they just not that well-known or, or widely observed? or?
1: Well, since then, so, the, so his paper on, on Coma uh, was published in 2015, uh, and since then there's been a lot of interest. So... Um, you know, we're still trying to improve the statistics. So in our case, um, the, the study that we're doing is looking at 16 clusters. Um, and that's actually, I think, the most clusters that anyone has, has looked at. So, so far, people have done, have studied individual clusters and tried to find these objects. Mm. Um, and then there have been a few studies where they looked, you know, at five to 10 clusters. Um, but we don't really have have a good statistical um, measurement of of these galaxies, how often they are occurring and and where in the cluster, what their properties are. So mm. that's where we're trying to
0: contribute. Okay, so now you said that that your well your your students work, um, you've found that they evenly distributed. Is that are you looking in one cluster or different areas to to the other observers?
1: Um. So that's actually so across the six, 16 clusters that we're looking at. Uh, we're not finding um, any particular trend that they're they're not they don't seem to be located around the outskirts of each cluster they're actually sort of spread uniformly throughout each of them so in that coma study the sort of first one in the series um, they found that these objects were only around the outskirts of the cluster right
0: um, that's what i was gonna okay so, so is that possibly maybe just a statistical fluke that's that's one cluster where it just happens to be that distribution, or possibly.
1: possibly? Um, there could be some, um, sort of observational biases that uh, Coma is a really big nearby cluster, mm. um, and it's, um, yeah, so you may be seeing, um, sort of slightly different types of galaxies in that cluster to, to the more distant ones that we're looking at. Um, but we've tried to sort of make similar selections, um. Yeah, it it, so it could also be there could be some evolution there between the ones that we're looking at and and like clusters which are are very nearby. Yeah. Um, but we've still we've still got to understand this. Um. It yeah. It could also just be variation that each cluster is slightly different and and in coma it, they happen to be distributed in that way.
0: Well, I'd love to hear more once you know once you've uh, reached some conclusions there. We. Maybe... Once, once once you publish something we can we can chat again
1: yeah
0: okay well i've was there anything else you wanted to talk about because uh, I'm done on my side
1: mm, no I think it was about it
0: okay fantastic in that case um, you know if anybody would like to uh, contact you or speak to your departments or what have you or look into studying in your area um, how can how can people get hold of you?
1: I'm available on email, so that's probably the easiest way to get hold of me. Um, my email is ros, just R-O-S, at sao.ac.za. Um, and people can always look up the, our website and look up SAO and find me on there and, and see a bit more about what I do from um, my website, which probably needs updating now with mm-hmm. <laughs> the new projects that I'm working on. Um but I think email is probably the best way to get hold of me.
0: Fantastic. All right. Thank you very much. I'll put all that up on the, on the show notes page. And yeah, thank you for your time.
1: Okay. Thanks so much, Alan.
0: So that was Dr. Rosalind Skelton of the South African Astronomical Observatory. If you'd like to learn more about her work or reach out to her, I've put some information in the show notes. If you don't have them on your podcast app, you can just go to urbandiceastronomer.com and browse to this episode on the podcast page. In a few weeks, on the 14th of September, I will be at Scopex at the Military History Museum in Johannesburg, South Africa. Scopex is an astronomy and telescope fair held every year, packed with amateur telescope-making displays, uh, science shows commercial telescope vendors, and public lectures in the auditorium. I will be presenting a talk on orbital mechanics demonstrated through the medium of Kerbal space program. So basically, I'll be playing games to demonstrate the physics of space travel. Other speakers include Case Rosedake, the president of the Astronomical Society of South Africa, uh, Dr. Peter Kotze of the Hermanus Magnetic Observatory, uh, Professor Roger Dean of the University of Pretoria. Martin Hagen, who is the section director of ASSA's astrophotography section, and David Rogers, who will be speaking on 50 Years After Apollo, with so much going wrong, how did they get it right? If you're in the area, please do come along. It's a great day out for the family, there's a lot to see and do, and of course you'll meet fellow space and astronomy enthusiasts who have flown in from all over the country. It's one of the highlights of the local astronomy calendar, and it would be great to get a chance to meet you there. Earlier this morning, I got an email from the South African Astronomical Observatory announcing a competition. The IAU have assigned South Africans to come up with a name for an exoplanet and its star, which have the official designations of WASP 62 and WASP 62b. Now, you can enter as either a private individual or as a school or other organization. And if one of your suggestions is chosen for the shortlist, you will win something. The prizes for individuals are fully paid trips to Sutherland for a tour of SAAO's telescopes. Organisations, however, win a 6-inch telescope, a selection of astronomy books for their library, and training on how to use it all. Suggested names will have to comply with standard IAU naming rules, which means nothing offensive, uh, no names of people currently alive, and so on. You can enter the competition website, which will also explain the rules in more detail. Uh, check it out at world.saao.ac.za or just follow the link on the show notes. One last short announcement I have joined the weekly Space Hangout crew, and if you haven't already heard enough of my voice, you should check me out there. See how I perform when interacting with other humans, but no script in front of me. It's going to be awesome. And with that, we're basically done. If you like the show, please consider subscribing so that you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to help, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podknife, or whatever directory you prefer. It helps new listeners to find the show, and I think it's important to help people, don't you? Speaking of help, you can help me much more directly by pledging a few dollars a month to support the show on Patreon. Just go to urban-astronomer.com, click the Patreon link, follow the prompts. It's always appreciated but whatever you decide to do don't forget to catch our next episode which drops on the 10th of september it'll be one of our science explaining bits and the topic is orbital planes why do planets always seem to line up so till then though cheers, guys